I normally end my episode with my three takeaways. Today, I'm going to use them to tease my show. I feel we're living in polarizing times. We're being overpowered by negativity and a growing sense of impossibility. Social media and even today's politics must take much of the blame as they often feed on our fears and insecurities and pitting one side against the other. And in doing so, we close our minds to others. We find ourselves for or against. We prefer inertia to removing the shackles of our biases and meeting people in the middle where collaboration and consensus can lead to a bold action. Second, change must happen from within each of us. And third, we must listen generously and dive beneath headlines and rhetoric to search for reality. Today's show is about one of the most defining conversations of our era, climate change. Everywhere you turn, there's prediction, contradiction, friction, and even conscription. Now, I've tackled this subject before by interviewing people like Sylvia Earle, Time Magazine's first hero of the planet, and her lifelong pursuit to save her oceans. Nobel Peace Prize nominee Celia Watts-Cluche and her dedication to preserving our Arctic and what she calls the air conditioner of our planet. Today, I'm continuing the conversation Search for Reality with two incredible guests. The first is Manrique Prada, a Costa Rican, a professor from the University of Brazil who has spent his life not just studying from afar, but living with indigenous tribes who survive by being in a constant conversation with nature. You'll soon learn why they believe the forest talked to them and what they're doing to sustain their way of life. Their lessons extend to all human life. My other guest is John Stackhouse, the former editor-in-chief of the Globe and Mail and now the senior vice president, office of the CEO of Royal Bank. John's here to talk about the RBC Climate Action Institute and its three mandates, to inform and inspire policy and action, to engage decision makers to discuss ideas and develop pragmatic climate solutions, and why this isn't a think tank, but a catalyst for facilitating bold action. So let me now introduce Manrique Prada. This is Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. Born in San Jose, Costa Rica in 1965, Manrique is a professor of biology and ecology, holds a PhD in biological sciences, and has taught students in Costa Rica, Brazil, and the United States. I hope one day he teaches students in Canada. He's also conducted extensive researches and topics such as biodiversity and conservation. Marike, welcome to Chatter That Matters. Well, thank you, Tony, and thank you for having me in your program also. I want to talk about the new book you're working on, Voices of Mother Earth, stories of your 25 years of experience uh, living with the Chavante indigenous tribe in Brazil. How old were you when you first went into that territory and met these people? It was after my master's degree. I studied at the University of Brasilia, and I did my master's in, in ecology. I looked for a job, for the first job. And the first job that appeared was, uh, I remember I, I went to a, a professor that I have, Alex. And I told him, Alex, I need a job. And I, so please, whatever you have or you hear about, tell me that I'm, I'm going to go and, and, and I'm going to work. And he said, well, okay, I, I have a job for you. But it's it's with indigenous people and it's with hunters. And I was just going out of my master's in ecology. I was just like, you know, it's conservation, it's, it's this, and it's how can I work with conservation and at the same time work with, with hunters uh, in an indigenous tribe? But I gave it a try. 
And I started the job with Ashavantes and this really changed my life. In what way? Because it really has become your life's calling. It's almost like you're a conduit between a way of life that we can all learn from and today's way of life, which some of which we need to erase. This conflict that I had between, well, I am a biologist, I am an ecologist, and how can I work with hunters? I found uh, uh, people like the Chavantes, which were hunters, but at the same time, they were the ones that protected the land in Mato Grosso, in Mato Grosso State. So in Mato Grosso, if you go to the region where I worked, there's the Chavante lands yeah, that are very well conserved. You still find animals, you still find the forest, you still find everything. And they are the ones that take care of, 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 of the land. And out of the of, of the territory, you don't find anything else. You will find cattle, cattle raising in farms and, and soybean. That's the only thing that you have out of the territory. So who are the ones that are conserving the land and the forest and the rivers and the animals? Are the Chavantes that are the same ones that depend upon wildlife to survive. And maybe the second thing that it marked a big difference in my life was life in community. At this time, I got to know what is to live in a community. In the Chavante, you don't have, for example, you don't have fences. You have the houses, their houses, and you don't have any fence. And they respect your space. You don't need fences. The territory is of everybody and of the community. When a Chavante hunt, a peccary, for example, it's not for him. It's for the community. In the Shavanti world, in first place is the community, and then it comes yourself. That's a very big difference because we are, and our society is, I am, individualistic. We are always worried about ourselves, and we don't see our community, and we are not worried about our community. And our whole life, we spent thinking about how can I succeed me, just myself. Manrique, how did, how did they accept you? Did you share a common language or how did they trust you given that all around them, what used to be forests is now soybean plantations and cattle, and you look like the person that was doing that? The first time that I went to the territory, uh, I, I went with, a, with an anthropologist, with John. He was the one that was in charge of the project, like the coordinator. In my master's, I studied uh, a palm tree, the Buriti palm tree, which is a very common palm tree in, in, in central Brazil. And the Chavantes, and this was a coincidence, because the Chavantes, for the Chavantes, the Buriti palm tree, it's super, super important. It's one of the most important species, plant species, is the Buriti palm tree. So the first thing that the, I went to, to meet the Chavantes, the first thing that John uh, told the Chavantes in a meeting that we had was that, that I was a biologist and I was a master in ecology and that I had studied Buriti, the palm tree. It broke the ice with them. They said, what? He's, so, so he knows about the Buriti palm tree. And John said, well, if there's anybody in our society that knows about the Buriti palm tree, it's Manrique because he spent all his masters studying the Buriti palm tree. And this was for them, this was incredible. That there was a, a Guarazú, that's the way they call the, the non-Shavante people, a Guarazú, that there was a Guarazú that was so interested 
in the Burici palm tree. Why did they give the people that weren't Cervantes that nickname? What did it stand for? Warazu, it means like a weak people. That's the truth. It's people that are weak, that are not so strong, that are not, and, and that are not the true people or the original people. That's us. We are Guarasu. I heard something about they almost describe us as like termites. We just come and eat everything and not realize that there's a, an ecosystem. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's true. And they, they think that we are just like termites. And they say that, yeah, that we cut everything just like termites. Just like termites, if they, if you kill termite, a termite here, then it will appear in another place. And if you kill the termite in another place, then it will, you will find a termite in another place. So it's impossible to kill. At that time, Shavante uh, fiercely defended their land. At the time of the first contact, we're talking about the 1930s, 1920s. They defended fiercely, so there was a lot of death at the time. The river that crosses the Shavante territory is called the Death River because every uh, non-indigenous that crossed the river, uh, he was killed. At the time, the government was, uh, their objective was to get the Shavanti tamed. It sounds like a horrific pattern that appears from one country to another. The thing that I also was fascinated about when I was reading the outline of your book is their, their belief in the power of dreams. So share a little bit about why dreams is such an important part of the Shavante culture. And it's almost their compass for understanding not only today, but where they're going to head tomorrow. For the Shavante, dreams are so important that all decisions in the community are based on the dreams and on the dreams of dreamers. The project in which I, I worked, the, initially I worked with the Shavantes, was a product of a dream of a Shavante in which they had to contact the non-indigenous people to help them solve the problem of wildlife because wildlife was going to start diminishing. Has it changed your perception of dreams spending this much time with Shivante that you start seeing that there's there's more to a dream than just uh, something that's entertaining you while you're sleeping? Yes, of course. And nowadays I I listen, let's put it like that. I listen a lot more to my dreams. It's a little bit difficult because I'm not a dreamer. Shavante people have the, the special person that dreams. Not everybody has the capacity to dream and interpret the dreams as a dreamer does. But at the same time, many people dream, tell the dream to the dreamer so he can interpret the dream. Sometimes you need help to interpret your your own dreams. To be in nature, I mean, you know, you could have been a guide, you could have been an adventurer, but you just chose to get some serious degrees, including a PhD in biological science. How did you coexist between having to be in the classroom and studying and this desire to be in Montezuma or be with nature? Like, how do, how do they work well together? Or? Well, yes, and, and my parents... They also gave a lot of, and a lot, I mean, a lot of, of importance to education. My father is a civil engineer and he always uh, shows us the importance of, of studying and going to school. And over here in Costa Rica, we also uh, have uh, this culture 
of, you know, you, you see little boys going to the school and, you know, very well dressed to go to the school. This is like a, like a part of Costa Rican culture and pride. So I couldn't separate both things. I felt the, the need to be with nature, but I also felt the need to study and to go to school. So I found biology. You know, it's interesting that there's two things that we should share with our audience because they don't realize that about Costa Rica. And the first one was the massive move to national parks and ecology that happened. And the second one was that as a country, you don't have military. You invest in education and healthcare and the preservation of your land as opposed to jets and, uh, and tanks. And I think that's something that a lot of countries might do better if they learn from. And we are proud of it. We are proud of saying that we don't have mili the, uh, military uh, forces and also about education. We are also proud about our university. For example, University of Costa Rica, it's part of the, of the Costa Rican culture and we are proud of it. And that's something very unique from Costa Rica. Obviously, it influenced me a lot. When we return, Manrique, Prada and I delve deeper into the voices of Mother Earth, his new book, and the lessons we can all learn within. Hi, it's Tony Chapman, host of Chatter That Matters. I want to congratulate RBC on the launch of the RBC Climate Action Institute. Canada needs more dedicated approaches to climate policy and action across agriculture, energy systems, buildings, and the RBC Climate Action Institute will be the place for advancing climate smart ideas to help Canada reach net zero. Mother Nature and the future of our planet? Well, that matters to you, to me, and to RBC. You're listening to Ch Presented by RBC. Ben. My guest today is Dr. Mariki Prada, a highly respected and sought-after thought leader on ecosystems and our environment. So you go from sort of working with this anthropologist to devoting 25 years studying the Shivante and getting your PhD and such. But one of the things that you're now in the middle of is turning this all into a book. The book is called Voices of Mother Earth. And I want to just talk a little bit about, so you have these great chapter titles and it teased me because I want to hear more. One of them was On the Anteater's Trail. So tell me what happened on the Anteaters Trail that was worthy of, of all the things you experienced in 25 years. It deserves a chapter in your book. Part of my work of the project was uh, we had to follow and count animal tracks to have an idea of the abundance of certain animal species. And the Shabante are skill trackers. At the time, well, we have uh, our methodology, our scientific methodology, which were transects. And in these transects, we used to follow these transects and you know, one hour of tracking and that's it. Let's go to another transect. Everything very well done in terms of, of science. So one day I was in a transect. Francisco, which was tracking with me, Ashavante, found a anteater track. He said, oh, the anteater has just uh, crossed here. Let's follow. And I said to Francisco, no, we cannot follow the ant eater uh, because we have to finish our transect first. And he said, no, but I want you to see me tracking the ant eater. And I want to show you how the Shavante track the ant eater. So at this moment, I have a, a conflict between if I, I should follow the methodology, the scientific methodology, or if I should go with Francisco to track the ant eater. But at the end, I decided to go to with Francisco to track the ant eater. 
He started to follow exactly in the same way that the anteater was a Anteaters, uh, they eat termites. In the Shavante territory, we have these vast, great areas of open grasslands full of termite mounds. And in a place where there was no sand, there was no way, it was just the way that the foot of the anteater left uh, the grass. So it was very, very, very difficult to see what was he following. So we spent like 45 minutes following the, the anteater. At the end, he found the anteater, right? Sleeping. It was very uncommon. And what did you learn about yourself with that conflict between scientific principles and the indigenous way that changed you? Well, I still have that conflict. <laughs> I'm still with that conflict. It hasn't gone away. But one thing, it's true. Part of my job in the territory was adapting myself to the Shavante community, to the place where I was working. And when you want to adapt yourself to a community and to any place you go, well, you have to respect the local culture and you have to respect the local knowledge. And it's not just about science. How do you reconcile that when you leave the Shavante territory? You're coming back, you're writing a research paper or the PhD and The scientific community is judging you by science, but in your heart, you also know that if we could remove some of the boundaries or parameters of science and first look at the their way, there might even be greater lessons learned than just citations and footnotes. Yeah, and the, and the conflict still uh, remains. I stopped working in the project due to this conflict. Because they wanted me to follow the scientific protocol just the way that they said that I should follow it. And it was impossible. And I told my, let, let put it like that, my boss, and it was not the anthropologist. The coordinator, the general coordinator of the project told me, if, if you don't get to do the transects the way that we established, uh, then we're gonna uh, get you out of the project. At the end, uh, they got me out of the project because I didn't follow the scientific protocol the way that they wanted me to follow it. That after that, the project stopped. They didn't financiate it more, the project. But then I continued working with Ashavante because then another financial agency came to us and the project started again, this time paying a little bit more attention with what they thought the work should be. Did you ever, in your 25 years living with the Shivante, ever find yourself in a place of great danger that you had to find your way out? Well, yes, yes. And one of the stories of, of my book, Manrique's Lagoon, maybe the, the experience in my life that I was more afraid of. A story where natural things are mixture a little bit with supernatural things. But read my book and read the story. And because if I start talking about Manrique's Lagoon, I think we, we won't have any, any time to, to finish the story. Interesting. You mentioned supernatural. And again, it's interesting as I listen to you, I see an artist, I see someone with great empathy and spirituality, but I don't normally use those accolades to describe a scientist who tends to become increasingly pragmatic as they're trying to get their knowledge through a gauntlet in our society that is very 
rigorous. Have you ever told your the scientific community that you have been exposed to supernatural experiences? Well, the scientific community knows that. At that time, I tried to, to respond to some questions that I had, and I started asking a lot of questions to scientists also. But you know, at the end, what people will think, this guy has spent too much time with the Shavante people, and he's going nuts. Depending on what you say and the way you say it. Does that bother you? As much today as it might have bothered you at the beginning of your career? It doesn't bother me now. Uh, At that time, it didn't bother me uh, also. Uh, uh, I think that it was part of the... When when we started to talk now, I I told you that the Shavante, my Shavante experience uh, changed my life. And it, it really did. And it's not because now I... I believe in in supernatural things and that's my no it's not that I know that it's not as simple as I thought it was it's not just science that will explain things in our life and in our planet and in nature it's not just science there's another components science is one and that can explain many things but there are other things and other important things and maybe more important things that are not explained by science humanity has this history of conquering framing the people who live there as savages raping pillaging i mean time and time again do you think your book voices of mother earth will be loud enough that we might start listening to the the reality is that people that might have been on this land for 10,000 years have an awful lot to offer to people that might have been on this land and changing it for a couple hundred years. One of the things uh, why I decided also to write the book, and and it was just because when I start uh, talking about my stories with Ashavante, everybody and everybody just said, why don't you write a book, Madrika? You should write a book. I started to realize that, that yes, and that we should, and, and that maybe through my book, people could, could come to give more value to indigenous knowledge, traditional knowledge. Uh, this is left behind by the scientific community and almost by our society. You know, it's just something like, okay, indigenous knowledge, let respect it, but let doesn't put too much attention to it. And it's not like that. Traditional knowledge is is the experience or the, or the sum of the experience of generations and generations and generations. So how can we not stop and look at it and value it? And I, and I did it. I'm Guarazú. I'm a special kind of Guarazú, but I'm Guarazú. I'm non-indigenous. But I know and I value traditional knowledge. And we all should. Where do you think you most belong? As a, as a human being, do you think you most belong with the indigenous or do you think you most belong in the scientific community? I think I most belong to nature. You know, when I'm in a forest or I'm, I'm in a waterfall or I'm in a, in a pristine river, that's when I feel that I'm in my place. And that, that's when I feel that I'm in contact also with the, with the, with the positive things and with, and, and with all this. It's nature. I've been reading a lot about trees. Um, it started with uh, this wonderful woman from Africa that I had on my show. And she just talks about how trees and the conversation they have with nature. Do you feel that when you're with nature that we're not the only species out there thinking that this 
entire ecosystem is alive and vibrant and worthy of our attention? Yeah, of course. And and the next time, uh, Tony, you, you go to a forest, try and, and give a hug to a tree. Give a hug and close your eyes. I don't know if you ever did that. My wife got me hugging trees about three years ago. And at the first time I thought she was, uh, what was she after? And now I'm a tree hugger. I feel the energy. My wife is far beyond me. She feels the pain of trees. She feels a tree that could be lost to uh, erosion, how it hurts. Uh, so she's much more connected. But I'm just finding that I'm changing. And a lot of it is talking to people like you. I'm curious as we as we end this interview, what's next for you? Well, in, in this moment, uh, I'm I'm here in Costa Rica, right? And I would like I would like to continue to work with uh, indigenous people and with nature. I will continue doing this and I'm, I will continue doing, doing this till the day that I'm not more able or that I die or that I'm not, not more able to, to walk or something like that. It can be here in Costa Rica with a bribri of Talamanca. It can be in Canada. It can be in Brazil or it can be in Africa. No problem. But I have to be in nature and I have to, to find or work with people that values and people that are from nature that have still this natural spirit. Do you think our way of healing this planet is better served by individuals learning about nature from people like you that have experienced it the way you have versus maybe this sort of um, massive move by the leaders of society to demand change? Oh, yeah, well, I'm, I'm sure of that. I'm sure that, well, what I'm sure is that the, the change is from, is from bottom to top. But you should not expect that the, the change will come with these meetings that they have with uh, the climate change meeting in I don't know where, you know, with a lot of people that go to the meeting and talks about everything or I don't know what, and then goes to his house and drives his fancy house or his fancy car and he's with his fancy house. I don't have anything uh, against fancy cars or fancy houses. But one thing is, is, is true. I hear in that in these meetings talking about sustainability. How can you talk about sustainability if you are individualistic? If you just care about the, about yourself or about your country or about your company or about whatever, but you are individualistic. How can you be, you talk about sustainability? These meetings over here, uh, for me, I don't see the, the sense in them. Are they going to change something? No, no, the change is from bottom to top. We go back again to our community and to work with your community to improve your community and not just see yourself, not just this individualistic way of thinking, you know? That's, I think that that's the problem. First, start working with your community, right? And this it can be your neighborhood first. I thank you for joining me on Chat of the Matters. Oh, thank you, Tony. Joining me now is John Stackhouse. I first met John when he was editor-in-chief of the Globe and Mail. Today, he's the senior vice president in the office of the president of RBC. John, welcome back to Chatter That Matters. Always good to be with you, Tony. Thanks. The last time we were on the show, we were talking about your climate blueprint, the $2 trillion it would take for Canada to get to net zero, and all sorts of other things, $500 million in sustainable financing, tech for nature, all the things that you were doing 
as an organization. But what I'm fascinated with now is what you're doing with this Climate Action Institute because you're opening the doors and inviting the world to be part of the conversation. So that's what I, I'd love to hear more about. Yeah, the, the, the key part of the Institute is that word action. Uh, we feel and we hear from a lot of people, there's a lot of talk. Uh, and, you know, talk is important. It's important to discuss, debate, and inform a lot of critical questions around, uh, around climate. But we got to get moving uh, and get moving right across the economy. As we know, the climate crisis and all the challenges that come uh, with it, are on all of us to get going on. So we're working with clients. We're trying to bring together communities and help Canadians act uh, and move faster, which we know Canadians not only want to do, we're already seeing it uh, across the economy. We just need to scale it up and uh, and accelerate. So my guest earlier was Manrique Prada, who lived with Indigenous tribes and really opens our eyes to this concept of being in a constant conversation with nature, sort of feet on the street, what I like about what you're doing is that you're trying to get this conversation happening so that it's not us feeling helpless, which is what I think a lot of the media is doing. It's too late. We've, we've done. But you're keeping this positivity and possibility saying if we start acting now and start putting dents into this problem, that our collective energy can, in fact, not only solve it, but what I liked about the last episode and also create a renaissance in terms of what capitalism stands for, which is a, a you know a social conscious uh, doing the right thing. Yeah, and I agree fully, Tony. I think one of the things we underestimate is the power of business and of of markets to drive change. We're seeing extraordinary change in the United States, uh, in large part because of the Inflation Reduction Act, but that has created incentives and unblocked disincentives for industry, whether it's in scaling electric vehicles or expanding hydrogen or to invest in what's called climate smart agriculture with a speed and scale that is really breathtaking. So when, when we talk to clients or groups in the, in, in the U.S., we want to ensure Canadians are keeping pace with that. And, and we can. Uh, I get to deal with a lot of RBC's best clients, whether it's in real estate or energy systems, from electricity to oil and gas to agriculture. And the amount of innovation going on across the economy from farmers to uh, gas companies to developers is really impressive. It's as good as anywhere in the world. But we have to come back to that point and remind ourselves of speed and scale. How are we going to do this uh, bigger and faster? because the challenges are right before us. They are bigger and planet Earth keeps reminding us that we don't have as much time as perhaps we'd like. As an invitation to my listeners to get involved, is there an opportunity for them to learn more about what you're doing, to participate, take action, or is it more sort of in the inner circle of just the sort of people with a greater influence? This is on all of us. Uh, and I love the advice of Catherine Hayhoe. She's a climate scientist, a great Canadian. She uh, teaches in Texas and is a world leader in terms of climate advocacy. She likes to remind her followers, especially on social media, that you can do something right now. You can do something today. 
talk about it. It actually matters. Join uh, climate action groups in your neighborhood, in your community, in your company. You'll find them everywhere. Get involved. Don't leave this to the scientists and politicians. Uh, they're going to do a lot, but this really is on all of us. Also, join what we're trying to build in the Climate Action Institute at RBC. Just Google RBC and Climate Action Institute. You'll find us. Sign up for our weekly newsletter called Climate Signals, which has a lot of really interesting ideas uh, and insights on what we can all be doing and what we should be watching. And listen to our podcast, RBC Disruptors, uh, which has a lot of great, uh, great climate conversations. I've known you for probably 20 years. I certainly saw you in the editor-in-chief in Globe and Mail. I've never seen you more passionate and more focused about a body of work that you're involved with. So I'm happy to hear that you're on this file and I'm looking forward to the weekly newsletter and I'll make sure everybody gets not only the link to that, but your Disruptor podcast, because you know I'm such a fan. So thank you for joining me in Chatter That Matters. Thank you, Tony. Chatter That Matters has been a presentation of RBC. It's Tony Chapman. Let's chat soon.